know I'm grateful uh, for today. I, I was telling them yesterday, I don't know if I'm more excited to, to sing and lead some of the songs or to preach. I'm excited about both and glad that we can spend some time together here. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing, though, on His Word before we dive in. Father, we thank You for the revelation of who You are. We thank You for the truth uh, that we hold in our hands today. We pray that it would accomplish all that you desire it to accomplish in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, seldom does a week go by uh, without me hearing or reading about a church leader's moral failure. Now, you don't necessarily run in the same circles that I run in, and so it may not be as often that you hear about instances of leadership falling and failing. But it happens all of the time for me. And, and we, we do have to ask the question, what do we mean by moral failure? Uh, well, immediately what I think comes to our mind is usually uh, sins of the sexual nature, adultery. Uh, uh, apart from the covenant, homosexuality, immoral advances, unwanted advances. We think of these things when we think of moral failure. It's just uh, three or four years ago that we took our students to Passion there in Atlanta, there were a few of the speakers that I was really excited for our students to hear, uh, some that not so much excited about, but one of them that I, I really wanted our students to hear was a man named Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is probably a name that many of you recognize because he has been a stalwart uh, for decades in the apologetic realm and, and, and arguing for a Christian worldview. He, would, he was bold enough to go into uh, colleges, secular colleges, and have debates with people and answer questions and was brilliant at it. Really a brilliant man. And I was excited for them to get to expo be exposed to him. And it was just a, a couple of weeks after that that really the news stories began to flow of all sorts of immorality that had been a part of his life for, for years and years. And then just a few months later, he actually died of cancer. Just even this, this week, I, I traveled to, to visit with a, a family friend who's in ministry and has some situations that are going on in his own church and in his own team there within his church ministry, issues of moral failure. But it's not just an issue of sexual sin. An un, unbridled desire for power is a moral failure. When those in authority will use the Bible as a tool that helps them to gain control over people, I would constitute that as a moral failure. What about a leader who involves themselves in gossip and slander and lies and dissension? Galatians 5 would say that is also a moral failure. Leaders uh, who would emotionally or even physically abuse others, sometimes that happens even in the confines of a church. Most often that happens in their own family and in their own home. That's a moral failure. Those who would misuse funds, taking funds that are the Lord's funds and using them for their own personal benefit would constitute a moral failure. Well, because sin is so pervasive and our creativity seems to know no end, this list could go on and on and on if we were to define and delineate the ways in which people can morally fail. I'm not going to claim that these failures that we see often now are a new epidemic. I, I believe these failures have always been there, but now we, we hear about them more often because social media, uh, because we live in an age where it's harder to sweep some of these things under the rug. And by the way, that is a very good thing. But I do believe that these things have always been here. I have a healthy and robust 
theological belief in the depravity of man. And therefore, I recognize that these have always been issues. In fact, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is not silent about moral failure. The heroes that we revere in the Bible, the Bible often has stories about their own personal moral failures. We love David. I love David. I love the Psalms. In these years of my life, these last few years, I've come to appreciate the Psalms in a whole new way. But David morally failed tragically on multiple levels. Abraham, I just read of his own moral failure, Isaac following suit. But just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean we want to do it. Just because everybody else is jumping off the bridge of moral failure doesn't mean that we're going to jump off the bridge of moral failure. And nor does it mean that we should take these issues lightly. I think there's a tendency in that direction when they begin to pile up and pile up, we become desensitized to them and we don't realize and and call them what they are. Because when a leader morally fails, it hurts a lot of people. It hurts their own family. Uh, It hurts a whole church family. Uh, It hurts a community. And so what do, what do we need? And I'm using that word now. I'm broadening this out. What do, what do we as followers of Christ need if we are going to combat against the temptation to moral failure? We need honesty. Talking about transparency. We need honor. We need accountability. We need righteousness. We need nobility. We need virtue. We need faithfulness. If I could sum all of those up into one word, it would be this word. We need integrity. And the Bible is not silent on the issues of integrity. Proverbs 10 verse 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. Walks securely. But he who makes his way crooked will be found out. 19 verse 1 in Proverbs, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. 28.18, whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his way will suddenly fall. When Paul is offering instruction to Titus, he says this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. And Paul's writing to to Timothy and he's giving the qualifications for those who would be in leadership, those who desire to be that episkopos, that that bishop, that overseer in the church. He says they desire a good thing, but what do they need to be? They need to be above reproach. That's a great word to describe somebody who has integrity. They're a person that people cannot easily accuse of doing wrong. They're above reproach. They're the kind of person that if somebody were to hear something about them and say, did you hear what so-and-so did? They would say, oh no, you've got the wrong person. There's no way that they're capable of that because they're living their life above reproach. We're all called to live above reproach. Today we're going to talk about the disciples' integrity. You might have picked up when David read for us, Paul desires to be a man of integrity. Paul desires for the Corinthians to be a people, a church of integrity. And so this morning we want to begin with that first desire in integrity in caring for money. So we've been talking a lot about money. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been here in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Corinthians 9, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and they're all about money. They're all about the collection that Paul is taking up for the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
And so he's been writing to the Corinthians, encouraging them to give. And as Paul prepares to collect money from the churches that will be delivered to those suffering saints in Jerusalem, he puts a plan into place that in his estimation upholds integrity. Here's what he writes. Look at verse 20 again. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. We don't want to be blamed in this. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Quoting from Proverbs 3 verse 4 there. In order to accomplish this honorable plan, Paul is sending men of integrity. Men who have been tested, he says. Men who are qualified. And, and it's important that we recognize that it is men, plural, not man, singular. He's sending a group, a delegation. First on the list is Titus. We know Titus. We've talked about Titus in our Second Corinthians study. Paul's talked a lot about him. Titus is the one who brought the news that, hey, the Corinthians are listening to you again. And Paul was overjoyed to see him and to hear that message. Titus has proven himself to be a faithful servant, and that's exactly what Paul reiterates in these verses. Paul says, his love for you is the same as my love for you. They're on the same page, and so he says, Titus is coming. And then he names a brother. He says, there, there, there's coming with Titus a brother who is famous among the churches in his ability to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, verses 18 and 19. He's also been appointed this, this famous no-named brother to take these offerings and deliver them all the way to Jerusalem. So he's been appointed by other churches. And then in verse 22, notice that there is the mention of another tested and earnest brother who is also eager to participate in the mission. Now you may be thinking exactly what I was thinking when I read through this the first time. Why doesn't he name these guys? I mean, it's obvious with the, the famous one that they know who he is, but Paul doesn't disclose his name. I don't know why Paul does that. There's all sorts of reasonings and suggestions. There's all sorts of speculations, even going back to the early centuries of the church, that that, that one who's really good at preaching the gospel, it's Luke, or it's Apollos. And so people put their, put their speculations. It doesn't matter. What, what matters is the point that Paul is trying to make. Their name doesn't matter. What matters is the mission that they're trying to complete. Paul has built into this money collection mission accountability. Layers of accountability on layers of accountability. Notice, according to verse 19, he does this. Why? For the glory of the Lord. This is all about the glory of God and to show goodwill towards others. If I could word that another way that we hear often in Scripture, he does this out of a love for God and a love for neighbors. It's why he is treating this so importantly and with accountability. Sermons on money often focus on the need to give, the responsibility of the giver. We talked about that last week. We'll talk about that again next week. But what I, what I find intriguing about this passage is the mirror is turned around. Paul turns the mirror not, not to the people who are to give the money, but the people who are Receiving and collecting and caring for the money. And he says, those people, us, we need to have integrity. We need to be accountable to one another for those things. Because there are people who are responsible to care for the Lord's money. The offerings that people give 
There's a church in Texas. You, you might have saw this a couple of years ago. It was a very well-known church, and so that's, that's why it made national news. But I think there was a plumber or somebody doing some construction work and found like a couple hundred thousand dollars stashed in a wall. I'm like, man, you got, send that here. We'll use that. You'll put it in your wall. No, no real accountability. How do, you, how do you misplace that? As your pastor, as, as one of the pastors, the elders, I stand before you today and tell you that we are, we are committed to the glory of God. And we're committed to the goodwill of others as we receive and care for and use the money that you give to the Lord's work. Our books open anytime. Our books, it's not our books, it's your books. It's not, it's not, it's, it's ours. You have questions? Ask the questions. We're, we're open in all of those particular areas. We're not ashamed of that. Don't feel ashamed yourself. Don't be reluctant. If you want to know certain things, you can ask those questions anytime. I'm proud to say that my role in finances is very small. <laughs> I don't like them. I never have, and I'm grateful over the years that there have been people who have been able to keep me at a distance from those things. Uh, one, because to me, they're icky anyway, but uh, also for my own sake and my own conscience. As God has blessed us over these last few years with, with excess funds, I, I say that because many of you were here when there were no excess funds. Um, it was month to month. We were making payments as we needed to make payments. I'm grateful for, for men like Dustin who have stepped in and they brought order and they brought structure. They've helped us to establish faithful budgets and keep us up to date on those things with reports and we've got relationships now with a ministry called Church Track that helps us to keep those budgets in line. We've got relations now with a, a ministry called Ministry Works that helps us on the tax end of those things and so uh, I got my W-2 the other day and didn't have to do anything about it. Uh, Dustin and Kenner put a bunch of work into setting these things up for us so that we're organized and orderly and accountable. And that brings me to the, the weekly grind. I'm thankful for Karen. I'm thankful for Ashley. Because they take what's given, they count it, they have accountability amongst themselves, they're, they're checking these things, they get the deposits ready, they write the checks uh, for the things that checks need written for. And I am so thankful for their faithfulness and I'm thankful for their integrity. And you should be too. You don't have to stay after. If you're here after and you're visiting and stuff and you wonder, why is John and Noah and Graceland just sitting up here doing nothing? It's because they're back here counting for 10, 15, 20 minutes sometimes after the service making sure things are faithfully done and rightly done. And I think through even the history and I'm thankful for, for Brenda I'm thankful for Mitzi. Um, they had to make some tough calls back in the day. Are we going to pay the electric bill this month or the gas bill this month? We never were behind. God was gracious and faithful. We never defaulted on anything. But I'm thankful for their faithfulness and their integrity in those areas. So very thankful. Well, as chapter 8 ends and 9 begins, Paul's attention turns back to the Corinthians. Notice what he writes in 8.24. He says, so give proof, Corinthians, give proof before the churches of your love 
and of our boasting about you to these men. So he says, I've given you proof of our love for God, our love for the brethren. Now you give proof. Paul is gently reminding the Corinthians to be ready when he comes. This is why he's sending Titus ahead, this other group ahead. Paul has been actively boasting about the Corinthians to the other churches. And he doesn't want them or even himself to be ashamed if he shows up and nothing's ready. And they're not going to give anymore. They're defaulting on the commitments and the desires that they had previously made. It seems that part of the delegation that will be coming will even be the ones that are coming in delegation too with Paul. Some of the Macedonians. If you remember how chapter 8 began, he was bragging about the Macedonians and their giving and using them as an example before the Corinthians. And so Paul says, we, we don't want to be ashamed. We don't want you to be ashamed that they sacrifice so much out of their poverty and you've, you've reneged on your commitments. Again, this is why he's sending Titus, the preacher famous for the gospel, and the other earnest guy ahead to prepare the way for the final delegation. I usually, um, I never really go around bragging about how big our offerings are or how many. I don't, I don't like numbers. I've never appreciated numbers. You go to certain meetings and people be, how many are you running there? Aaron knows this conversation well. I, what, what does that matter? What's God doing there? That's the question we want to ask and encourage each other in as, as church leaders. And so I've never bragged about numbers and offerings and things like that, but I will tell you, I have, I have bragged, I have boasted to others about Meadowview and about friendliness, that it's a welcoming church, that it's a church that will love you, and let's just imagine then this scenario plays out where I, I meet a family here locally and they, they, they've just moved here, they're looking for a church, something, and I, and I just encourage them, I say, hey, you're welcome to come visit anytime. You'll find our people to be welcoming, friendly, loving, and they come and nobody acknowledges them. Nobody shakes their hand. Nobody says hi, nobody introduces themselves, nobody asks about their story. That would be embarrassing. <laughs> That's what Paul's talking about here. I don't, want, I don't want you, Corinthians, to be embarrassed. Paul, I don't necessarily want to be embarrassed either because I've been boasting a lot about you. I've commented on this before, how grateful I am that you know, we come into a series like this in chapters 8 and 9, and it's not out of necessity necessarily. We don't have to talk about money. There have been seasons of our church where we have had to talk about money, we're not in that particular season right now. We, we can pay our bills. We can purchase the items we need. But, and here's the caveat, but with our increased initiative, our $2 million building, we do have to talk about money. It is a conversation because it changes everything. As we each commit to give towards the building until it's paid for, we have to be people of integrity. Givers with integrity because here's what happens in this process. Loans are taken out and loans have to be repaid. And we have to have integrity to make sure that our commitments are being met so that those loans can be repaid as we've taken them out in good faith. Verse 5 
of chapter 9 summarizes the section so well. Check it out with me one more time. He says, so I thought, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead, Titus and those guys, to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. This summarizes well what we hope to accomplish with the commitment cards that we handed out last week. There's still some on the back just asking you to, to, to wisely, to faithfully make those commitments. You make a, a proportional and a sacrificial commitment that enables us to put together a better timeline to understand exactly how, how much we can expect to come in every month. What, what could a mortgage, what could a loan payment look like in that? And then we begin to make wise decisions about when do you take out loans? How much do we need to have in-house before we take out a loan? And then what does this whole process look like? And then what happens? We give with integrity in the coming months and years. Things will happen in life. We understand that. We trust the providence and the sovereignty of God. You may lose a job. Your situation may change. We understand those things. But overall, we're looking for commitments that are commitments of integrity. And then finally, this enables us to avoid exacting money from you because you're giving it willfully. None of us, I don't want to stand up here our other elders don't want to stand up here. Our building team doesn't want to stand up here and, and two years from now and plead with you for money. We want you to be giving willingly so that there's not an exaction. So today, once again, we're asking you to commit. We're asking you to think through that and to follow through, to follow through with your commitments, with integrity. Our, our leaders, we're committing as well to give with integrity, but we're also making a commitment that we will be wise. That means I won't have much to do with it, but we will be wise with the money that is given as we move forward looking to continue to grow the ministry here and not just here, because it's not just about a building fund. We're talking about your missions money that you give so that we can advance the gospel around the globe. We're talking about that manna money. We're talking about the money that you give to the general offerings and trying to be wise with that as we spend those funds here for our church ministry. So today, the call is to live with integrity. We can focus that in on money, and we're doing that for an application point here on how we give. We want to be givers of integrity. But that is a broad thing, isn't it? To live your life with integrity. You know, that's only possible when we live in Christ. We're not naturally people of integrity, are we? But when Christ changes a person, man, He changes a person. And when he moves in and his spirit begins to control a person, they become a person who has integrity. They love, they're filled with joy, they're filled with peace and patience and faithfulness, self-control. 
in Christ we can be people of integrity. If you're not in Christ today, oh, I would plead with you. Why not? Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to be the person that you know you should be because you can't apart from Christ. He offers us true hope and life. And so I would encourage you today, if that's you, turn to Him today. Cry out to Him. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, though, I just want to challenge you in this regard. In Christ, find accountability with other people. You want to be a person of integrity, you're not going to do that Rambo style. Just lost half of you. You're like, who's Rambo? (laughs) Date myself. Parents, if you haven't shown your kids Rambo, get on it, right? No, yeah. (laughs) We're not meant to do this alone. We're in fellowship. We're in this body together. We need that accountability. We need each other. And so if you want to live with integrity, you need accountability. This is where I believe our small groups can go a long way to help us. Because they're designed for us to be transparent. They're designed for us to share, here's the things that are going on in my life. Not siloing ourselves off, not hiding behind something. It's why I send out every week, and if you're in in my care group, this will be a little bit of admonishment for you. If you can't make it, share with us what we can pray for you about. Open yourself up a little bit and say, I'm just struggling here. Things are tough. We We want to help you. We want to help you to be a person of integrity. And then... My second point was, would be this, and this is for any of us who lead. Whether you're leading in a, in, a, in a children's ministry, whether you're leading in any fashion in your home, your work, lead with integrity. And in Christ, we can. In Christ, we can. This is one of the things that I, I, it has brought me such joy, has brought such peace to my soul, and I hope peace to you. I've loved that we've transitioned to a plurality of elders. I never wanted to be, never liked being the person who just kind of had to call the shot. Because I know me pretty well. And I'm prone to failure, I'm prone to mistakes, and I love having Dustin and Chuck, and, and we can talk through these things. We can hold each other to account. We want to be leaders of integrity. This is one thing that I, I want to challenge you this week as you meet with your small group or as you text if you're not able to be a part of that. Um, how can we do better here? How can, how can you do better in inviting other people in? How can you do better in engaging with others so that we can mutually be people of, of integrity, people who are above reproach? I don't want to see another friend fall. I don't want to see destruction in your family. I don't want to see destruction in your life as a follower of Jesus. I want us to thrive. To thrive in Christ as people of integrity. We have everything that we need to do that. It's just humbling ourselves and letting people in, humbling ourselves and opening up God's word humbling ourselves, and setting aside the time to pray so that we might be people of integrity. 
I'm going to ask you to bow with me for a moment. If you need to pray with somebody, maybe the conviction this morning for you is, I, I need to confess some sin to somebody. I just need to share with somebody, here's something that I'm struggling with. We want to invite you to come at this time. We've got a prayer room right over here uh, to my right, to your left, that we would love to pray with you. If you're questioning your, your salvation, your in-Christness, we want to help you answer those questions. But one thing I challenge you to pray right now is this. God, what can I do so that I can be, so that I can be a person of integrity? What do I need to do? Who do I need to open up to? Who do I need to confess to? What are the things that I need to do practically? And then commit to be obedient. I'm going to let you pray for a moment. I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, I thank you that Jesus is our integrity. The most integrous man to ever live. And because he lived with integrity, I... I will one day stand before your throne full of his integrity. I do not deserve that. None of us do. But you are gracious and merciful and so very good. But God, I want to be a pastor of integrity. I want to be a husband and a father, a member of this church. I want to be a person of integrity. And I want that for each and every one of us in this room. Lord, I want us to, to thrive in following Jesus in our faithfulness. And so help us to be open and honest. Help us to not wall ourselves off. Help us to not hide our sin, but to bring it to the light. Help us to be faithful to confess. Help us to be faithful to confess our sin, but also to confess our, our need for grace and mercy and then receive it. Help us to keep our eyes on one another, watching one another in, in love and affection, caring for each other as we help each other grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to increase. We want to increase in that area, God. Help us to also be people of integrity when it comes to the commitments that we do make. Lord, we pray for your miraculous provision. For what we've prayed about and believe we, we need as a next step here regarding a building. And so help us to follow through with integrity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.